Good afternoon. I'm Adam Scher, Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions, and I welcome you to your Virginia Museum of History and Culture. The VMHC acknowledges the Powhatan Confederacy and the Monacan Nation that inhabited the land where this museum now stands. We seek to honor that history and maintain thoughtful relationships with those indigenous peoples and all the tribes of Virginia. Their story is integral to Virginia's past, present, and future. We'd also like to acknowledge the generosity of former trustee Ann Worrell, who endowed this lecture series in honor of our former president and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. Uh, before I bring, uh, bring Dan on, uh, I'd like to make you aware of a few upcoming events so you can mark your calendars. Uh, next week, next Wednesday, July 20th at 5.30, we'll be holding our uh, J. Harvey Wilkinson lecture and we'll be featuring uh, Joseph Ellis, uh, the, the prominent historian who will be talking about his book, The Cause, as we begin to think about the 250th anniversary of our nation. On July 28th at noon, our next VMHC lecture uh, will be Brent Morris, who will be talking about uh, his book, Dismal Freedom, about the Great Dismal Swamp. On August 3rd, uh, Virginia Journeys uh, will take you to the National Museum of the U.S. Army. Um, and I think that there, there are still some tickets available for that. So uh, I would hop on that opportunity uh, if you're interested. And uh, I believe that uh, the bus will be leaving quite early, about 7, 7.15 or so, uh, as it journeys up to Northern Virginia. Uh, and finally, on August 6th, uh, celebrate Virginia Craft Beer Month and the opening of Cheers Virginia uh, with us uh, as we host the fifth annual Brouhaha Craft Beer Festival. Now on today's program. In 1759, William Preston purchased 16 enslaved Africans brought to Maryland aboard the slave ship True Blue. Over the next century, the Prestons enslaved more than 200 people and used their labor to operate Smithfield, the family's Virginia seat and the plantations into which it was later divided. In the True Blues Wake tells the story of the men and women who were enslaved in, at Smithfield between its establishment in 1774 and the abolition of slavery in 1865 and how upon emancipation, they used their new freedom to advance the world. Daniel Thorpe is an associate professor of history at Virginia Tech and is the author of several books, including Lewis and Clark, An American Journey, Facing Freedom, an African-American Community in Virginia from Reconstruction to Jim Crow, and the subject of today's talk in the True Blues Wake, Slavery and Freedom Among the Families of Smithfield Plantation. Please give a warm VMHC welcome to Daniel Thorpe. Thank you all very much, uh, both both for the for the for the welcome and for for being here. Uh, I think everyone is still in getting back into the habit of going places in public. I think uh, in in the will well, not end yet, but the, at least maybe maybe we can see the end of COVID. Um, make sure I get the right. There we go. The Smithfield itself and the Prestons are relatively familiar 
at least in my part of Virginia, southwestern Virginia, uh, perhaps less so in eastern Virginia. But the Smithfield Plantation has been a part of the historic landscape of southwest Virginia for almost two centuries, and actually over two centuries, and has been a, a place of frequent visitation. It's one of the, the tourist sites in southwestern Virginia. But much of that history and many of the visitors for years were informed about the White Preston family and the white residents of Smithfield. And there was very little acknowledgement even uh, of the enslaved people who built the plantation. That's what got me interested uh, in this project was I wanted something that would tell the story of the other residents of Smithfield, the ones who are less well known. And I should I have to explain, I, when I talk about Smithfield, I do mean the house that's still standing and the, the roughly 500 acres around it. But over the course of a century, the plantation was divided so that what had been the original Smithfield plantation in 1774 was by 1865, three different contiguous plantations. Smithfield in the middle, um, Whitethorn plantation, which belonged to a man named James Francis Preston, is still in private hands and was actually across the highway, uh, what's now the highway, uh, Route 460, uh, from the, the core Smithfield. And then on the other side, uh, actually on what is now the campus of Virginia Tech, uh, was the home of Robert T. Preston, uh, Solitude Plantation. So I when I talk about Smithfield, I'm talking about sort of greater Smithfield, uh, which was the original plantation and then the three plantations in, into which it was divided. Um, as we know, just heard a minute ago, we do not know when the Prestons first purchased enslaved workers, but it was no later than the summer of 1759. Uh, we actually have the receipt that uh, William Preston, uh, for those of you who are not, not great at reading 18th century handwriting, uh, William Preston paid 752 pounds current money. So 752 pounds of Virginia money for 16 Africans. The document above that is actually is, is the advertisement for the sale of those slaves. Uh, the True Blue was a Liverpool-based English ship that made about a dozen trips during the 1750s, 1760s, early 1770s, uh, generally transporting uh, enslaved Africans from the west coast of Africa to the Caribbean. This was the only trip it made to the Chesapeake. Uh, and because of taxes, uh, Virginia levied a large tax on imported slaves. And so what the True Blue did was land across the Potomac River in Maryland and in, in invited Virginians to cross over to uh, pay, avoid paying taxes. Uh, and so this is, what, this is what William Preston did. Uh, William Preston came up from what's now Botetot County, Virginia, where he was then living in the summer of 1759 to Nanjiboy, Maryland, where he purchased 16 individuals who had just been imported from a, an English slave fort on the coast of what's now the nation of Ghana. Unfortunately, that's all we know about the individuals that Preston purchased. Uh, there's no record of their age, no record of their gender. And because of the nature of the slave trade, we can't even be sure of their original ethnicity. The, the fort at which they were, um, 
exported, uh, Anambu, on the coast of Ghana, people from a variety of, of regions in the Gold Coast, Slave Coast of, of Africa, brought captives to Anambu to be sold. And so we cannot say with certainty what tribe they belonged to, what their ethnicity was. They may well have been a mix. Among those 16, there may have been people that couldn't even speak the same language as one another. Uh, certainly probably came from different tribes. There may have been family groups. They may have all been separate individuals. We, we, we just don't know. What we do know is that William Preston purchased them that summer and took them back to what was becoming his first plantation. Uh, it's outside of the town of what's now the town of Fincastle. It's called Greenfield Plantation. And this is where Preston began building his agricultural empire. Uh, he stayed there for another 15 years. And because he was, in addition to being a plantation owner, he was the surveyor for uh, Augusta, or originally deputy surveyor, then surveyor for Augusta County and later Botetourt County, that meant he had to wor literally work at the cutting edge of civilization because it was he who went out and figured out what land people were claiming as Virginians moved westward. And so by the 1770s, Fincastle was actually too far east. And so in 1774, he moved to what's now Montgomery County and established Smithfield. So that's the plantation that I want to focus on. Unlike Eastern Virginia, um, Southwest Virginia was not the heart of tobacco country. You could certainly grow tobacco in Southwest Virginia, but it was then extremely difficult to get it to market. And so Smithfield at its inception, hemp was the big money maker. Virginia actually didn't make very good hemp, um, but 1774 was just before the outbreak of the American Revolution. And once that, once the revolution began, Virginia, for military purposes, naval purposes, desperately wanted more hemp. They would, the state of the colony and the state of Virginia would buy all the hemp that Preston could produce. And so originally, the, the enslaved workers at Smithfield, the, the money-making job they did uh, was to grow, grow and produce hemp which is a really labor-intensive process. Um, the, 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 the plants had, the, the, the seal had to be feeded, seeded multiple times. Then once the hemp was harvested, it had to be either left out to be rained on during the winter or put in water to soak. Then it had to be put on a hemp break, which is that device in the lower left-hand corner that crushed the stalks so that the hemp fibers could be pulled out and eventually turned into rope or, cor or, or baggage uh, for a variety of commercial or naval purposes. But this was the moneymaker originally. The problem was, like I said, Virginia, Virginia didn't make very good hemp. And so once the demand, wartime demand ended, there was less demand for hemp. And by then, settlers were, were raising hemp in Kentucky, and Kentucky produced better hemp than Virginia. And so by the early 1780s, the hemp market at Smithfield had pretty much dried up. And for most of its history, the plantation made its money and employed its slaves caring for cattle and wheat. Again, they could grow tobacco, but it just wasn't worth the, the effort. And so for its entire history, up, up through the end of, of uh, the plantation era in 1865, the, ma the major crops produced at Smithfield were cattle and grain. 
the grain, uh, much of it was then milled into wheat. The Prestons, as early as the 18 teens, 1817, 1818, uh, established a grist mill at Smithfield, where they not only would, would could grind their own grain into flour or cornmeal, but could also take um, neighbors' grain and turn it into uh, flour or cornmeal. That could then be exported profitably. Of course, cattle were great because they walked to market. Didn't have to worry about exporting them. Uh, just point them north and drive them there. In addition, this is one of the things that, that many people um, don't understand about slavery. Smithfield, many of the people enslaved there did work regularly at, on the plantation. But a plantation, particularly one using uh, growing wheat and cattle, often didn't need all of its workers all of the time. You know, once you plant wheat, for example, you don't weed it. It just grows. And so slaves would plant the wheat and they would harvest the wheat. But in between, there was often a slow period when the Prestons didn't need on the plantation all the laborers they had. And so slaves could be and were frequently rented out. If you had a project that you needed labor for a couple of months, it made no sense to buy a slave particularly if you could just rent one for a couple of months or for a year, that was often it was for a year. The, the enslaved, particularly men at Smithfield were often rented out. Uh, and in Southwest Virginia, the two most common venues for hired labor, the top left, that's an ironworks. Uh, we often think of you know, huge mills that Andrew Carnegie built, but in antebellum America, most of the iron in America came from very small operations scattered around the United States producing pig iron. So what you would have is, and actually you can still see these, if you, if you drive around rural Virginia, particularly in, in my part in Southwest Virginia, uh, you will still see what looks like a stone, almost like a stone beehive or a, a truncated tower. These were iron furnaces. And you'll notice there's a ramp coming up from the right to the top Iron making involved putting massive amounts of iron ore, limestone, and charcoal into the furnace and then burning it for weeks on end. Uh, once it, the process began, it would often go nonstop, 24 hours a day for weeks. Hired slaves didn't have the skill to be the iron master, um, but somebody had to haul tons of iron ore and dump it into the furnace, Ton, break up limestone and put tons of limestone in the furnace, turn acres of trees into tons of charcoal and dump that in the furnace. This is what hired slaves did. Railroads were another source. Uh, in the 1850s, the Virginia and Tennessee Railroad was built from Lynchburg to Bristol right through Montgomery County. And railroads often, southern railroads at least, often depended on hired enslaved labor to do the grunt work of building the railroad, um, digging the tunnels. Uh, when you get to my part of, actually, uh, once you start going east of here over towards Charlottesville, uh, the railroads began having to tunnel through some of the mountains. And tunneling was dangerous, brutal work that often hired slaves were used for. 
So the, the enslaved men at Smithfield spent much of their time working on the plantation or as they were often hired out to iron, to the iron works for the railroads. And there, of course, was also all the domestic labor. Uh, a plantation like Smithfield, which the number of, uh, of individuals there varied over time, obviously. The Preston family, you're talking about maybe a dozen people. But for the enslaved population, uh, by the time William Preston died in 1783, there were 34 uh, enslaved residents of Smithfield. Early in the 19th century, it was up to just over 50. And by the time of the Civil War, if you count the three plantations as one, there were just over 100 enslaved workers. So a very large population had to be fed, had to, their had, they needed clothing. Uh, and it was, of course, enslaved men and women who did most of that. So on the top, obviously a kitchen. Uh, the kitchen, actually, the, there are two kitchens at Smithfield. Uh, the summer kitchen, which was outdoors, vanished long ago. Uh, the winter kitchen down in the basement is still there. And then, of course, somebody, enslaved workers, served the meals, cared for the children of the enslaved, of, of the Preston family in the house. Uh, the, the picture on the right is not actually from Smithfield. Uh, it's from a nearby resort. It was done by, if, if you're not familiar with this man, I want to encourage you to go look at his, at his artwork. Um, Lewis Miller was actually a Pennsylvanian who had family in Christiansburg, Virginia. And between the early 1850s and his death in the 1880s, he either visited Christiansburg or lived in Christiansburg for extended periods of time. And he was a very talented watercolor artist. He did hundreds of beautiful watercolor sketches, watercolor and pen and ink sketches of just daily life in Southwest Virginia. Uh, this is one is it, of, of one of the resorts on the New River. But so the women would have all done the, the, the sort of domestic, actually, and some of the men uh, doing the domestic labor. Now, that's the overview of the, of the plantation and plantation life. But as I said, what I wanted to focus on was the enslaved people living there. They, as on all plantations, formed a separate community. I mentioned that the, the first 16 that Preston bought um, were African, perhaps couldn't even speak to one another because of linguistic differences. But one of the things that happened at Smithfield and on similar plantations was those strangers became a tight-knit community. All of them, of course, were forced to learn English. All of them had their African names stripped from the beginning. Um, as early as, I think, 1761 or 1762 was the first reference that the Prestons made to any of their enslaved workers by name. And it was, of course, an English name, John, uh, or actually it was Jack, uh, the, first, the first record. So they, they were forced to speak English, forced to dress as Englishmen, forced to, to adopt English names. But they also, I suspect, retained certain elements of their African heritage for years. Their parts of their language, parts of their religion, their music, parts of their food, insofar as they could. Um, a great many African foods had been trans already transported to North America. The center of that African community would have been what was called the quarters, the collection of, in the Preston's case, log cabins where the enslaved lived. 
on the one on the top left, if you go to Smithfield today, that's what you'll see. Um, they call this slave quarters. It is probably true that an enslaved person lived in that house, but it was probably not built primarily as quarters for the enslaved. It was because originally that building was at Whitethorn Plantation, one of the other parts of Smithfield, uh, James Francis Preston's plantation. And actually the picture on the right, that's Whitethorn showing the, the, the ancillary buildings around the main house. Um, you can see the main house, the brick building in the middle. Near it were buildings like a laundry, a kitchen, a smokehouse, things that the family wanted access to and in which enslaved workers might live. So a cook might live above the kitchen, but these weren't the actual quarters built as slave housing. The one on the bottom is, this is from Greenfield Plantation. Greenfield was the original Preston Plantation and, I, and was owned by the Preston family up until the civil, actually until after the Civil War, uh, owned by members of the Preston family. Those are, those quarters were built to be slave housing and have survived to the present. Uh, unfortunately, they were moved about two years ago to make room for an industrial park, uh, but at least they were moved carefully. This picture was taken before they were moved. Uh, this is a, it's a double cabin. So two, two cabins uh, built adjacent to one another with a brick, with a, a fireplace in the middle. This is probably what the slave quarters at Smithfield looked like. We have no archeological evidence of them. We have no descriptions of them other than one post-war deed in which one of the pieces of prop, Smithfield was divided up after the civil war among heirs. And on one of the properties, there's, there is a description of four cabins and a double cabin. I suspect the double cabin looked identical to the one in this picture. And the others would have been smaller versions uh, there, they are uh, log buildings, one and a half stories. So the downstairs would have been a living area, the upstairs, uh, a sleeping area. They did have a fireplace. Uh, the one at Greenfield at least had wooden floors. Uh, many slave quarters just had dirt floors. We, and we don't know what the case was at Smithfield. We would very much like to raise money to do some archeological work. Uh, but the problem with slave quarters is they left a very light archaeological footprint. Um, the, the buildings themselves have no foundations dug down. Uh, some slaves did build storage pits under the houses. And so we're hoping we might be able to find um, remnants of those at Smithfield. Because we have a good idea where to look. A quarter, as I said, was the heart of a slave community. And at Smithfield, this tree was, we think, the heart of that community. Many West African communities assign spiritual value to trees as a place where spirits live. And the trees, this is certainly true in Ghana, uh, these become sites for communal activities, for marriage ceremonies, for funeral ceremonies, for celebrations. Both the enslaved, the descendants of the enslaved and the Preston family members identified this tree called either the Mary tree or the Mary oak as such a location for, the, for those enslaved at Smithfield. The tree, unfortunately, most of it came down in a storm two years ago. 
Uh, today, all that's there is about a 20 foot tall stump. But fortunately, just before it came down, Virginia Tech finally acknowledged, oh yeah, this tree is important. And so they actually are working now to preserve the stump uh, because it does, the, the, it sits on Virginia Tech property. Uh, and so it's now, for many, many years, they farmed right up to the trunk of the tree, which wasn't very good for the tree. Uh, they've now got a fence around it uh, to give it a about a 20 foot buffer zone uh, before you get out to the, to the farmlands. So hopefully, at least the stump will remain there for another century, perhaps. The tree itself has been there probably for three, three centuries. But this would have been the center of an African-American quarter, about 200 yards from the main house. Now, the people, this is what I really wanted to do, was to find people. And now I have to, okay, magicians are always told not to explain how, how they do their tricks. But historians, we have to. That's what footnotes are for. So we're going to now talk about sort of how to reconstruct an African-American community. Because they don't have the records that white Americans have. Uh, there aren't birth records, there aren't marriage records in many cases for African-Americans until well after the Civil War. So we have a historians have a combination of records. This is actually the earliest known record identifying by name individuals ensla enslaved at Smithfield. This is the, the tax list from 1783 in which William Preston uh, was paying, paying taxes on uh, 34 enslaved African-Americans, all of whom are named. Unfortunately, all it tells us is their first names, though it did indicate which ones were uh, over the age of 21 or between 16 and 21. That's who was taxed. Uh, what it doesn't tell us is young children because they weren't taxed. But so we have one list of names from 1783. And we do get a, a few tax records from time to time. The most useful records in general are what are just collectively called probate records. Uh, when people die, when rich people died at least, they not only left a will, but they often left an inventory of their property. And so this is part of the, the records of the estate of William Preston. Preston died in 1783 when most of his children were still quite young. And so his estate was not divided up actually until the early 19th century, once in 1806 and then here in 1816. What this document is, is the record of the, the, the descendants of William Preston assembled probably in the living room of Smithfield and debated among themselves who would get which slaves. And so identified by name are, there were about at that point 51 uh, enslaved people at Smithfield. The numbers to their right are their assigned financial economic value. And the heirs were trying to balance who got who, what their value was, and would then have to pay the estate for the value of these individuals. So this is, uh, and again, we have them all named and their purchaser. So we were able to identify who was leaving Smithfield and where they were going in 1816. Then we have some private records. Um, Harvey Black, the family for whom Blacksburg is named, uh, and actually Harvey Black was went off and became, he's most famous as one of Stonewall Jackson's doctors, but he was also just a family doctor in Blacksburg for years. And the Prestons hired him for a decade to care for 
all the residents of Smithfield, Whitethorn, and Solitude, black or white. Fortunately, Harvey Black was a diligent keeper of records, and he was also lucky enough that his records survived. And so this, for example, um, that's one of the slaves. Um, trying to think, can't read it from here. Excuse me a minute. Bill McNorton, William McNorton. Um, unusually, every now and then, Black would write the last name. Uh, people think slaves didn't have last names. They had last names. They all had last names, and they knew their family names. It's just white people didn't bother to write them down. But a common name like Bill, um, Black wanted to distinguish which William he was talking about. So that's William McNorton, whom we'll get back to in a few minutes. But Harvey Black for a decade, we have a record of not every slave at, at Smithfield, but at least all of those from whom he dealt with. This is where the book actually started, though. When James Patton Preston, who was the son of uh, William Preston, died in 1843, he had 91 enslaved people. And every, literally every stick of furniture, every book, Everything at, at Smithfield was inventoried when James Patton Preston died, including the 91 enslaved workers. They're all listed here by name. So what you have on the, on the left-hand side is the name of the individual. Then they birth the year in which, well, actually it's their age, excuse me, not the year in which they're born, their, their age. So from uh, the eldest was Nellie, who's 70 years old, down to uh, Mary Jane, who's seven months old. And then the far right-hand column is, again, their appraised market value. That was the point of an inventory. Well, when I found this, I started thinking, all right, who were these people? And this is actually what got me started on this project, was finding this inventory and wondering who were these people? where did they come from? Where did they go? What were their lives like? Fortunately, as I just mentioned, we have a lot of records about Smithfield. And so I cannot, to this day, identify everybody on this list. But eventually, I've been able to identify about two-thirds of them. I can work, to some extent, work backward. So I mentioned to you Nellie, who on the 1843 inventory is shown as a 70-year-old woman with no monetary value. That's Nellie in 1783. When William Preston paid his taxes, Nellie was one of the women on whom he paid his taxes. So I can work backward from the inventory using the tax list, using the, um, family, the, the estate divisions that I showed you, and can figure out where the people, some of the people on the probate inventory came from. More importantly, I can go forward. So, We'll start with Cynthia. Cynthia shows up on the 1843 uh, inventory as a 12-year-old woman worth $350. Unfortunately, no last name, no nothing. Well, a few years later, the, the 91 slaves on this list were divided among William Preston's four, or James Patton Preston's four surviving children. Most of them there in Montgomery County. James Francis Preston, one of the sons, inherited Cynthia. 
And I know this because of Harvey Black. Harvey Black kept a separate account for each of the Preston brothers. And so Cynthia, there's only one Cynthia on the inventory in 1843. Uh, and a decade later, a woman named Cynthia shows up as a patient of Harvey Black's at James Francis Preston's plantation. So my first hope was, okay, this is the same Cynthia. Then when Preston died in 1862, there again is Cynthia. She's now 30 years old. The math works out just perfectly. Uh, she was 12 or 13 uh, in 1843. By 1862, she's now 29 or 30 years old. There she is listed on, this is the probate inventory for James Francis Preston when he died. And with Cynthia, you'll see are Hellas, Dilia, and Henrietta. Well, five years later, the, the Freedmen's Bureau had arrived. And the local director of the Freedmen's Bureau amassed a, an in, a, a census in 1867 of every, Amer every African American in the county. It's a fantastic document. And lo and behold, there's Cynthia, Hellas, and Henrietta. What, I'm, what, I, what historians look for, a single name like Cynthia, there can be multiple Cynthias. But finding the combination of a Cynthia with a Hellas, with a Henrietta, the, the, I'm not a mathematician, so I can't calculate the odds, but they're longer, a whole lot longer than just a Cynthia. And what this gives me is a last name. This is the real problem with African-American genealogy, is that it's very, very difficult for individuals looking for their heritage to go from post-Civil War African-Americans to pre-Civil War because they don't have surnames. The families had them. Again, I want to make that very clear. But they don't appear in the records generally. And so this census is one of the records that lets me cross that bridge back to the antebellum years. So we've got Cynthia Franklin. I now have a last name for her as long as her, as well as her children. The other document that is a gold mine for people like me, and unfortunately this is not the clearest vision of it, clearest copy of it, but let me explain this. It's called a cohabitation register. African American, enslaved African Americans often married. They formed families and married, but their marriages had no legal standing. After the Civil War, this presented a legal conundrum for the state of Virginia. We've got thousands of people that are illegally living together. Their children have no legal standing. So shortly after um, the Civil War in 1866, the state of Virginia announced to African-Americans, to, to, to those cohabiting, if you wish to have your marriage recognized legally, come to the courthouse or come to a location where the county officials will record your marriage and it'll be retroactively legalized. That's, these are called the cohabitation registers. There was supposed to be one in every county, but only about 20 have survived. Fortunately, the one from Montgomery County survived because what cohabitation registers asked for was the full name, first name, last name of both the husband and the wife, the wife's maiden name, not her married name. They also asked their age, where they were born, 
where they were and who their last owner was, which is what allows people like me to link African-Americans after the war to a particular plantation and to give them surnames. So this happens to be, um, again, it's hard to read from that copy. Let's see if I have it written down. Yeah, this is Richard Saunders uh, on the left and his wife, Margaret Dandridge. We're gonna talk about Margaret now for a minute. The cohabitation register on the far right lists the names of the children of Margaret and Richard Saunders. And again, when I go back to the 1843 probate inventory, there's Peggy. And Peggy has a bunch of children that match exactly the children named for Margaret and Richard Saunders on the cohabitation register. So I'm able to attach a family name, not her birth name. I do not know her birth. Actually, I do, uh, because she's on the cohabitation register. I know she's she's was Margaret Dandridge, Peggy Dandridge, who then married Richard Saunders and had the children that we see there. So this kind of puzzle work allowed me to reconstruct families. And it I didn't know this at the time, but it turned out that for some reason, the Prestons on this inventory organized it by family. So meet the Franklins, Cynthia, the McNortons, they're in kind of a purplish, uh, the Fraction family, the Saunders family, and the Moon family. And what's great about, besides having families, having, having names and, and, and ages and birth dates, um, I can also say this demonstrates the kinds of families typical on plantations. Cynthia Franklin, we do not know um, where, who her husband was. But the McNortons and the Fractions, those were both residential couples. Uh, William McNorton and his wife, John Fraction and his wife, were born on the plant, all born on the plantation, lived their whole lives on the plantation. Uh, they lived probably as nuclear families on the plantation. The Saunders are an example of what's called an abroad marriage. As far as I can tell, Richard Saunders was never Preston property, was never at, never on Smithfield. I don't even know where he lived. But owners often permitted slaves to marry across plantation bounds. Uh, and so Margaret Dandridge was allowed to marry Richard Saunders. Margaret Dandridge was still the Preston's property. So she stayed at Smithfield and under Virginia law, slavery followed the mother. So the children stayed at Smithfield. So we have Peggy Saunders and her children at Smithfield, but don't have Richard. So this is an abroad marriage. And finally, the Moon family, um, William Moon was a free, a free man of color. He had been enslaved uh, by the Price family, who lived uh, about a mile from Smithfield, and was emancipated in the 1830s. By then, he had already married a woman named Louisa. I don't know her last name, unfortunately. Louisa had, by 1843, died. But William and Louisa had four sons. And their sons, again, even though their father was free, because the mother was a slave, they were slaves. And because they were Preston slaves, they show up on the, on the probate inventory in 1843. So I've been able to reconstruct uh, not all of the families. Some of these I'm positive are families, but I can't prove it. If you look on the left column up just above Cynthia Franklin are Jacob and Esau. I will bet anything they're twin boys. 
but I have no idea who their parents were. Uh, and I don't know if the people listed above them are siblings, no relation, I, I don't know. There, there's still mysteries that I'm trying to solve. But I was able to, to, to attach a number of family. And once I have family names, now we can start tracing them after the war. Immediately after the war, they didn't move very far. Uh, the ones to the right, they're actually down in uh, Pennsylvania County. They had not moved. Well, it, it's the head, not voluntarily. Um, William Preston had, a, or James, Frank, James Patton Preston, excuse me, had a daughter who married a man named Gilmer who lived in Pennsylvania County. And so those are slaves, members of the McNaughton family and the Moon family that when James Patton Preston died, they passed to his daughter and went to live in Pennsylvania County. They remained in Pennsylvania County afterwards. Most of the rest stayed right around Smithfield. And people often wonder, you know, well, why didn't slaves leave? Well, they had no money, for one thing. Uh, it was hard to leave if you have no money. But a bigger thing is, this is a world before Facebook. This is a world before the internet. This is a world before birth certificates, before driver's licenses. How do you even prove who you are, much less that you can be trusted? Economics depended on trust in the 19th century. You lent money to people you knew. You hired people you knew. And so for formerly enslaved African-Americans, staying where they, were from, where they were known was often essential. So most of them stayed put for the first, well, actually many, most of those who were freed as adults stayed and went on to become really established members of the community. Um, the man on the bottom right, that is the only picture I have yet found of any individual ever enslaved at Smithfield. His name is William Poindexter. He went on, he was a, a, a blacksmith, went on to become a deacon of what was then called Memorial Baptist Church, now Schaefer Memorial Baptist Church. Uh, the gentleman in the middle, uh, William Schaefer, that's the Freedmen's Bureau agent who kept that census, uh, thank thankfully. But all of these men were uh, deacons of the church. William Poindexter, as I said, was one of the, had been enslaved at Smithfield. The children of that generation began migrating rapidly and to great distance. People often think about the Great Migration when African Americans moved north in the, 18, in the early 20th century. Well, that began in the 1880s. Uh, African Americans from Southwest Virginia began moving to West Virginia to work on the coal fields. They began moving to Iowa to work in coal fields. They moved, and I would love to know why, to Montana. Um, I can't imagine how a young, a 20-year-old black man in Christiansburg, Virginia, would suddenly decide, I'm going to Montana. Um, and I don't know if he went directly to Montana or stopped along the way. But as you can see, they began spreading rapidly. And so now I do, do begin to have pictures. Uh, speaking of Montana, this is William McNaughton, not the Bill McNaughton on Harvey Black's um, medical records. This is his son. Uh, the name was repeated from father to son. That's William McNaughton in his living room in Thompson Falls, Montana, where he lived from the 1880s until he died in the 1930s. Uh, over on the right, these are members of the Moon family. Uh, graduation picture from about 1900. And the second on the left is uh, Saunders Moon. His nickname was Old Logic 
according to the yearbook, because of, quote, his gravity of deportment and depth of logic. And then down on the bottom, uh, this is Ethel and Ada Peters. They were two young black women uh, in West Virginia who, during the First World War, wrote a book called War Poems to celebrate the contribution of African-American soldiers during the First World War. So the family began spreading, began doing a lot of things other than raising hemp and cattle. The picture on the top, I mentioned a lot, went to West Virginia. This is Glen Jean, West Virginia. That's actually the Coney Island Saloon, uh, which William McNaughton's brother owned, Stanley McNaughton. And I mentioned going to Iowa. On the bottom, these are the residents of Muchikinik, Iowa. Iowa coal miners, like a lot of coal miners, dealt with strikes. And often when there was a strike, they would head east to Virginia and recruit strike breakers. And so Iowa had a large African-American coal mining population in the late 19th, early 20th century, uh, including a number of those that had been descendants of those enslaved at Smithfield. And then, of course, they've continued spreading. Uh, this is by no means all of them. Uh, I, there, there are multiple McNaughton descendants, for example, in Montana. But I just put one to show that family and one to show the Fraction family. Um, there, there are dozens in some of these places. And not through my efforts, on their own, and then I've worked with them, they've begun coming together as families again. So this is the Fraction Family Reunion uh, in 2019. And I am delighted to say they admitted me as I'm kind of an honorary, that's me right there, I'm an honorary fraction. Um, this was the strangest part of this research, not the reunion, but getting on the phone to elderly African-Americans in Seattle, in Portland, in Los Angeles, and saying, you don't know me, and you have no idea your family was enslaved here, but I think I'm looking for your, for your ancestors. Not one hung up on me. Uh, they have all been incredibly welcoming. Uh, and together, we continue the process of trying to fill in the blanks and add more branches to the family tree. Um, this project has been so much fun to work on. Uh, and I've, you know, I come from a relatively small family. I've now become a member of a very large and growing family. Thank you for your attention, and I'll be happy to answer any questions you might have, or at least try to. That's, it's, that's for the benefit of the people who are online, so they can hear your question, too. Hello. Okay. <laughs> Let's see. If, does this work? Yes. Um, I was wondering, for cases such as you mentioned the Moon family, mm -hmm. the mother passed and the children were still enslaved. And I'm assuming that that happened not infrequently, or you would have a mother or both parents who were enslaved die how would the like small children who were enslaved, what would happen to them? Well, as I mentioned, the, this was a, a tight knit community. Um, because I don't know Louisa's last name, I don't know if she had relatives on the plantation. Mo many of the families were quite extensive. So it wouldn't surprise me if Louisa had siblings, for example, on the plantation, even if she didn't, 
what we have been, what historians have been able to reconstruct about slave communities elsewhere is that others slaves often relied on what anthropologists call fictive kin actually almost any southerner has this um i have people that i call aunt they aren't my aunt uh there are some second or third cousin once removed but they're a generation above me so they become an aunt we think probably in in the slave communities that kind of fictive kin were often critical because on an, in a broad marriage for example one parent might only visit once a month and so somebody else on the plantation would often step in to fill the role of father older brother aunt whatever um william moon he at least in this case because by the late 1830s uh when moon became free he, be he actually went and worked at smithfield for wages he became, a, he became a hired hand at smithfield i don't know when louisa died she the last record i have of her being alive was 1826 when the children were still pretty young so there may have been as much as a decade when they were in that situation of being orphans on a plantation but probably under the supervision of fictive kin thank you very much i have uh, two questions one is you listed on the one of your first slides the difference in value signed to 16 to 21 year olds and then for tax purposes yeah for tax purposes yep and so who determined i mean was there a, a tax collector who was an expert in appraising human value cap no the, the when slaves were taxed they did not tax them on their monetary value. The, the, tax, the tax law in Virginia simply said, how many slaves do you have over the age of 21? You pay a tax, a head tax on them, it's called the poll tax. How many do you have between 16 and 21? You pay a tax on them, just the same amount, regardless of their monetary value. So even Nellie, who had no value, market value, according to the Prestons, you would pay a, a, a tax on them as an individual over the age of 21. And then in the slides on uh, probates, uh, the list of the probate uh, uh, list that you show, uh, you have uh, values assigned by- Correct. Uh, appraisers. Yep. And so uh, can you say anything about that appraisal yeah. process? When, when an individual died, um, the court would appoint usually three men to, to value the estate. And these were men that would have been respected in the community, would have themselves had experience with the farming in the community, with slave ownership, and they would tour the property and they would assign a value to the cows, to the horses, to a field of wheat, uh, or to an enslaved individual. And I don't know that they deliberately underestimated but quite often the the inventory is just that it's an inventory and then a month or so later there will there may often be a record of the estate then being sold at auction the family would keep what they wanted and then what they didn't or what the or what the um uh the, the deceased had willed to them 
And then other things would be sold at, at just a, a public auction. And the prices paid at auction are also then recorded. And quite often, the, particularly the slaves, were sold at auction for more than their inventory value. Uh, but the idea was it was an approximation by informed individuals to give the administrator of the for example if there if the if the will said the children should divide the slaves equally well somebody had to figure out all right these four slaves how much are they worth economically all right if they're four children maybe together they're only worth as much as this skilled craftsman over here so in order to for the for the heirs to equitably divide the estate uh, it was helpful to have at least a ballpark of what their value was and that's what that's what these appraisers were expected to do same thing a real estate appraiser does now when you sell a house real estate appraiser comes and gives you what they think the market value for it will be uh, and it may sell for more may sell for less but it's what a an informed expert thinks the value is Uh, yes, I, I was wondering, how were the uh, last names chosen for the slaves? Were those the family names or is that just? I wish I knew. The family wishes they knew. Um, I was very lucky in my research in that Fraction and McNorton are in Virginia rare names. And it's not like you're looking for Smith. Uh, and so I, I wish I could tell you where they, I cannot find a single white person in Virginia named Fraction. We have no idea where that name came from. Now, there are two stories in the family. One is that mulattoes, mixture, part white, part black, uh, were called fraction because they were a fraction black, a fraction white. Who knows? The family favorite is that in the, in the 19th century, fraction could also mean fractious, a troublemaker. The fraction family were troublemakers. Um, not, I mean, it was, it was warranted. They, they ran up, two of the brothers ran off and joined the Union Army during the Civil War. And their owner threatened to kill them if they came back. Well, they came back. He tried to kill them and they shot back. Uh, they had a gun battle. And so the, the, the Fraction family are very proud of that. And so they're happy to say we were troublemakers. So they called us Fraction. I have no idea where McNorton came from uh, or Moon or Saunders. I do know that once an African-American had picked that name. The name Fraction went through multiple generations of enslaved people. The name McNorton went through multiple generations of enslaved people at Smithfield. They may have brought it with them. The Prestons bought slaves down, in South, down elsewhere in Virginia and brought them to Smithfield uh, in the years after the revolution. And it may well be that somewhere in Virginia, there was a man named McNorton who had slaves and sold them to the Prestons. I just don't know. You mentioned um, early on in the presentation the double wide slave cabin that was had to be moved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and also the possibility for slave made storage spaces underneath. Mm -hmm. For that one that was moved, were you able to do like, or was anybody able to do an archeological survey before it was moved? They did before it was moved. And as far as I know, there were, no, actually that one has wooden floors. 
Uh, and so if there were storage pits, they might have been somewhere else. And I don't believe they found any evidence of anything around the houses. But those at least, uh, in the old days, um, people moved stuff with not even thinking about it. They, they bulldozed cemeteries without thinking about it. Now the Department of Historic Resources says, no, 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 you can't do that. Uh, and so before anything was moved at Greenfield, uh, they were very carefully documented, uh, including archaeology. But at, at that particular site, there were no pits found. This is what, they've, what they have found in these pits. Often they were used for food storage. They were often used for uh, religious rituals. One of the things they, they can't, they don't quite know what they were used for. But one of the things they've often found in these storage pits will be bottles in which are bones, feathers, uh, other kinds of, of objects that clearly had some sort of, of, of significance to the individuals. And they were stored in these, in these pits, often in front of the fireplace uh, in, the, in the houses. I know you focused on the Smithfield uh, plantation, but do you have any comments about differences uh, that would be interesting uh, between plantations and other parts of the, the South? Yeah, um, let me let me let me preface this by saying, "good" is a relative term for enslavement. They were still slaves, but. Among the Preston brothers, among the, Pre among the various Prestons, they seem to have been, most of them, relatively benign owners. Um, we have no records of excessive punishment. I'm, sure I'm sure there were punishments, but we have no reports in the in the, among, the, among the descendants or in the surviving documents. We have some letters between Preston and his overseers, for example. Um, and there's there's not much indication of harsh discipline. They did buy and sell slaves right up until the Civil War, but not as frequently. I mean, Virginia at this point, the number one export from Virginia for many years in the antebellum era was black Virginians who were sold into Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi. The Prestons don't seem to have sold many slaves and when they did, it seemed to be local rather than to the interstate slave trade. Um, James Francis Preston, for what it's worth, did ask that his slaves' families not be divided when he died in 1862, though they were. Um, the division, though, tended to be, again, local, so that some went to Whitethorn, some went uh, elsewhere. The work regimen, it's, this is a, it's hard to say what was what was better and what was worse. Tobacco plantations worked on a very regimented schedule because tobacco required heavy labor almost from December to December, planting the seedlings, transplanting the seedlings, hoeing the crops, suckering the tobacco, harvesting it one leaf at a time, drying the tobacco, packing the tobacco. That took from literally January until November. And it was often very regimented labor, uh, the, the, sort of the sort of labor where you worked as a team through the tobacco fields. The work on a wheat plantation or on a cattle plantation was very different. You might be taking care of cattle one day and then sowing wheat the next day and then uh, harvesting hay the next day. So there was a little more variety. Uh, 
that that may be an advantage that was let there was more variety disadvantage was on a tobacco plantation there was a time when everything shut down from late november until january there really wasn't much to do on a mixed plantation they could find something for you to do every day of the week every day of the week all year round and so the labor regimen would have been different and it's particularly if you start looking further south at places like south carolina or the or the sugar fields Virginia slaves tended to work on what was called the, the gang system, where they went out in the tobacco fields or went out in the, in, the, in the wheat fields, and all of them worked together under a supervisor. On the rice plantations and on the sugar plantations, they often employed what's called the task system. Your job was you've got it to dig 10 feet of rice ditch today. I don't care how fast you do it. If you finish it by noon, you're free for the afternoon. If you want to take your time and spend all day, fine. Um, so there are different labor regimens among, among the slaves, uh, both within Virginia and between Virginia and elsewhere in the South. What probably wasn't very different was the, the, the family patterns, the, the, the residential marriages, the abroad marriages, the marriages of free people of color. That would have been common throughout the South. And marriage itself, family formation, was almost universal on plantations. Some owners thought that it would make the workers more obedient, um, more less likely to run away. Uh, a single man can run away more easily than a man with a wife and four kids. But it was also good business. Um, by law, if a slave woman had a child, the child was the property of the slave owner. And so one of the fastest ways to increase your wealth was to have your slaves reproduce. And so that merit family formation that would have been probably universal um and the same sort of community formation that would have been pretty much universal on the plantations um given the uh current Apparently, and the, and the uh, growing cries, I guess is the word, uh, towards reparations of some sort. Um, is there, is there, do you have any estimate of the amount of wealth that these, that the enslaved folks at Smithfield contributed to the Preston family? All of it. Any any idea of how much over the century? Oh God! That's an how do you, how would yeah, you figure that? Interesting. Well, that, that's the question. Uh, interesting question. I, I've not tried to do it. Um, I guess I could look at the appraised value of the farmland because they cleared it all. The appraised value of the buildings that would be easy to do because every county has what's called the land book, and in the land book. Each year, some government official would appraise the monetary value of your land and the buildings on it for tax purposes. The harder part would then, well, then I could calculate roughly um, based on, we have 1850, 1860 agricultural schedules. So I can see how in a year, how many bushels of wheat did the, did the Prestons raise? How many head of cattle? And I could put a market value on that. 
The real problem is in converting it to modern values. Um, I just, my, my wife, I just did this a couple days ago for a, a fee, a fine that someone was paying in court, an $8 fine. My wife said, well, that's not much. So I tried to figure out what would $8 be worth in modern uh, currency. And there's actually a website that does this, this kind of thing. And it says there are five different ways to calculate it. And that $8 would have been worth somewhere between $5,000 and $180,000. So calculating the, the exact dollar amount would probably be a real challenge. Um, but basically, everything the Prestons had ultimately came from the, the, the labor of enslaved African-Americans. And that would have been true of many Southern families and of the South in general and of the United States in general. Uh, before the Civil War, the single largest export from the United States was cotton, the vast majority of which was raised by enslaved Africans. And so something like 50 or 60% of the export wealth, the exported products coming out of this country were due to slave labor. Uh, the, the rough ballpark is that the monetary value of enslaved African Americans in the states of the, the, the American states that had slavery exceeded the market value of every factory, railroad, everything in the United States. That that was the, that was the largest part of the American wealth was, in, was slaves. So uh, putting an actual dollar value on it would be, would be a challenge, but it's a bunch of money. I'm interested in the um, artwork of Lewis Miller. Yeah. Uh, has that, uh, have those, well, first of all, where would, where would you find those? Uh, all right, Lewis, Lewis Miller was from York, Pennsylvania originally. And so some of his art is in the York Historical Society. Here in Virginia, the two largest collections that I know of, one is in the Virginia Historical Society. Um, the, other is, which, um, the other is in the Abby Aldrich Rockefeller Museum of Folk Art down in Williamsburg. Those tend to be his material from uh, the, the years he was in Virginia. Um, he used to come here and visit in the 1850s, as far as I can tell, did not come during the Civil War. And then after the Civil War moved and settled in Christiansburg, he's actually buried in Christiansburg. So the, the, the three biggest places to see his art other than online uh, would be York, Pennsylvania, Richmond or Williamsburg. Uh, and his, his art appears in hundreds of historical studies. Uh, the one that I showed is one of his lesser known but perhaps his most famous painting is of a slave coffle th going actually through Christiansburg on their way from Virginia to Tennessee. It appears in dozens of textbooks uh, and dozens of studies of the slave trade. So his, his work is becoming better known. Um, he's all, actually, you may, you may see him also as Ludwig Müller was his actual birth name. Uh, he was a good Pennsylvania German. Has there ever been a, a retrospective of his art or an academic study? publishing there have been the york art. historical society published a, a book of some of his some of his pennsylvania material back in the 1860s back, excuse me 1960s there's actually a man i know in um back in, in montgomery county who is trying to put together a book on his virginia work i read a draft of it and it's really not ready for prime time yet so I, i've been encouraging him to make some changes because i would love to see more of Miller's work better known because he's just a phenomenally, A, he's, he's talented. I mean, he's not great. I, I was talking to, 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 to Graham Dozier this morning. 
we have some pictures that Edward Beyer was another artist in Virginia in the 1850s. And Beyer and Miller both did landscapes of Christiansburg at about the same time. Beyer's, the buildings actually are three-dimensional. Miller's are all flat. Um, I mean, he's not, not a great artist, but he's, he's better than me. What's great about it is Miller didn't do formal portraits of people. He did daily life. And so my favorite example of that is up in York, he did a painting of a basement in which a woman was making sauerkraut because apparently a drunk gentleman in York wandering down the streets needed to relieve himself and went to the bathroom through her window into the sauerkraut. And Lewis Miller paints it all and then tells the story underneath. Uh, that's what makes Miller's painting so wonderful is it, it gets you into the daily life of antebellum Americans in a way that it, it's almost, you know, cameras couldn't do that. You had to stand still and pose for a portrait with an early camera. Miller could do it. Uh, so they're, they're just great paintings. And the, the more people know about them, the better. My question sort of formed as I was thinking about your work and any thoughts that you have about I think about American history. I think what I learned about American history and people like you are beginning to uncover at least a richer history that this country had than I learned in school. Mm -hmm. um, do you see yourself as part of a greater group of historians that are exposing this? I, the first book I read was Slaves in the Family. Right. And watching these pieces come up you know do you see a time when this is going to be a cohesive whole and a piece of history just like the revolution or just like the things that we had to learn i certainly hope so i mean it was it's not an attractive side of our history but it is absolutely essential to understanding our history uh, for one thing i said economically this country was literally built on the labor of enslaved Africans. That's what made us, helped make us a rich country. And whether we pay reparations or not, at least acknowledging that, um, literally the US Capitol was built with slave labor and the, the, the foundations of this country. I hope that people, you know, I don't want people to feel guilty um, I mean, my family, I'm a North Carolinian. We owned slaves. I, we, my family owned about 40 slaves on the eve of the Civil War. I'm grateful because the wealth those people created meant that my family could go to medical school. My family could go to law school. I, live, I was born into a relatively, by American standards, privileged middle class in part because of the labor that enslaved people did for my ancestors. I don't feel guilty for that because I didn't do it, but I want to acknowledge that their contribution to my family and that I hope will someday be a part of what every American is learning in school, simply because it is a fundamental part of their history. What I, but I also, I, I, I don't want in, I really don't want to, in, to, to, to 
add to white guilt. I want Americans cognizant of their past. I want them to acknowledge what happened to Native Americans and, and our role in that. What happened to African Americans and our role in that? Shoot, what happened to the Irish? Uh, we treated the Irish as badly as we treated the, the African Americans almost when they first came here. Um, for many, many, many people, life in early America was very unpleasant. And nobody needs to feel guilty for that, but it is something that I want and I hope people will recognize and it, will it won't be a divisive element in American culture. I mean, the idea that somebody might come into my classroom and tell me you can't talk about slavery because it might make a little white kid feel guilty, that's just bad politics, it's bad history, it's bad everything. Uh, I hope we'll never come to that. I mean, I, I, I would love for this to be something that all Americans can accept and deal with. But I'm not sure I'll live long enough to see that. We'll see. It, I mean, it, it has, in my lifetime, has moved phenomenally. Uh, and I hope that'll continue. Thank you. I also wanted to point out in this picture, yeah. I, I deal in a lot of antique furniture. His right hand back here has the most beautiful barley twist of a leg. Do you see that with his fingers? Yeah. I don't know if anybody else sees that. <laughs> but that is the most artistic presentation of a hand that I've seen in a long time, and it just captures that perfectly. Well, this is a this is a picture that um, I first saw it in a newspaper from the 1940s up in Montana. And the advantage of a small town, I called the newspaper and asked if they by any chance had the original photograph. And she said, well, no, we don't, but one of my staff members actually runs the historical society, they've got it. Uh, and so I was able to get, because the picture actually, this is about, a, this is the middle third of the picture. Um, actually, someone like you needs to look at the full picture because I can't tell what all the stuff is in his living room. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff in there. It, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a great picture. Uh, and I was just, I was so delighted that they still had it, that the, the Saunders County Historical Society up in Thompson Falls uh, sent me a copy of it. So. that lit the fire of this research project. And that probate inventory. Um, and so when did you um, uncover that? Was it in another? Um, that was actually when I, my, my last book um, before this one was called Facing Freedom. It's, it, it was published as uh, an African-American community from Reconstruction to Jim Crow. That's because UVA cut three chapters out of it. Um, it was supposed to start with the last generation in slavery. And so would then show the transition during the Civil War and pick up after the Civil War. Um, UVA thought that'd be too long. Uh, and so the three there was going to be a chapter on slavery, a chapter on free people of color, and a chapter on the Civil War. And those all got chopped. So it was in the course of working on facing freedom that I came across the inventory of the Preston estate from, from 1843 that I, that I showed you up there. And so I was aware of it, but that book was on the whole of Montgomery County. 
And so the Prestons were a small part of the book. And I didn't want to spend pages and pages going on about the, um, the probate inventory. And then afterward, I could not, I mean, people used to ask me, I would give talks about that book and some people would always ask, what happened to the people who left the county? And I'd have to shrug and say, I don't know. It's all I could do to trace the ones in the county. Um, when I, when that book was finished, I went back to this inventory and thought, okay, this is a manageable sample. It's not representative, uh, but it's a manageable sample that this gives me one group of people that I can try to identify who they were and where they went afterward. And the other spark was, so that was part of the spark. It's just my curiosity. The other was by then I had gotten involved with um, Smithfield Plantation. And to their credit, they have over the last five or six years begun to say a lot more about the enslaved workers who were there. But in their gift shop, there's nothing about the enslaved, or at least there was nothing about the enslaved. And so when I started this project, I thought, okay, I have no idea how much I'm going to find. I don't know if it's going to be an article, a book, but whatever it is, I want it to be something they can sell in the gift shop if people want to know what happened to the slaves. And so those were the two prods for this project. It was one just my own curiosity, but other the, the desire to have something in that gift shop that would speak to the enslaved people who were there. And last question, how long from picking that probate list up, you know, the second spark, if you will, till this? How long did it take? Um, well, since this began with the first book, um, it's now, I think, 11 years. Um, the first five or six, every Friday for five or six years, I was down in the records room of the county courthouse. And my goal was to look at every, pub, every county record generated between 1840 and 1910 and look for any trace of any African-American in any record. It was great fun. I loved, I mean, that's, I love going through the archives, um, but that was you know, five or six years just for that. Then this one, this was mainly written with a lot of online research in part because of COVID, but mainly because thank goodness there are sites like Fold3 because otherwise I would have had to go to the Saunders County Courthouse in Thompson Falls, Montana, which I like doing. Thompson Falls is a nice town, but it's expensive uh, to keep traveling all over the country like that. <clears throat> And so a lot of this was done uh, over a two or three year period, living on the internet uh, with records uh, in various archives and in newspapers, so a, lot of, a lot of newspapers online. But all in all, um, it's been 12 years so far and, and counting. I haven't finished yet. I've got, what I'm working on right now is another project that I don't know if it'll be an article or a book, depends on how much I can find out. Find out. But it's something that when I was, spending those days in the courthouse, I found this court file and thought, oh, that's interesting. Put it aside for later. Well, now it's later. Um, so I've gone back to it now. So this may end up being a 20-year you know, project before it's all done. Historians are patient. <laughs> I think Dan will be signing books. Yeah, be happy to. Uh, in the lobby so we can continue the conversation there. Thank you all for coming.